Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Madeline Shepley, and I'm your host for the Shine Bright Like the Firmament podcast. And with me this morning, I have Chris Baglow. How are you, Chris? I'm doing fine. How are you, Madeline? It's a lovely day in Indiana, especially with the weather we got. So I'm super pumped for the day. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been very excited to have you on ever since I heard that you were a thing. So for... For my listeners that don't know who you are, why not you give a little bit of a background about yourself? Absolutely. Well, first, I'm a theologian, and I am a professor of the practice at the University of Notre Dame in the McGrath Institute for Church Life, and I direct the Science and Religion Initiative of the Institute. And so my primary work is to, besides teaching courses on faith and science at Notre Dame, is to help Catholic educators, science and religion teachers mostly, integrate faith and science in the work that they do in Catholic schools. So then we have a grant from the John Templeton Foundation precisely to support that work. So that's that's what I do. I was doing faith and science work for a long time prior to coming here in July of 2018 to direct the initiative, including a book called Faith, Science, and Reason, Theology on the Cutting Edge. That sounds awesome. I mean, you saw how I was getting excited over some of the other resources you suggested before you hit record. Right, right. Okay, good. Yes, thanks. I'm so so glad. So yeah, well, that is a very awesome endeavor to be in. But why not we take it back a little bit and where are you from? How did you get interested in this intersection and start there? Okay, well, so I was a, I've been in academia for about 18 years. Cool. Uh, defended my doctoral dissertation in 2000 and at Duquesne University and began teaching in the place where I grew up, which is the uh, New Orleans area. So I'm from New Orleans. Yeah, my wife is from New Orleans and our kids were born and raised there up until 2018 when we moved to here to, you know, to the Notre Dame environs. Anyway, so um, I'm a very historically Catholic area. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I grew up in a big Catholic family there, in fact. That's um, awesome. Uh, so interestingly enough, I kind of came along faith and science research and work and writing kind of accidentally. Accidentally. Um, I consider it a providential moment, actually. (laughs) Uh, In the summer of 2005, my wife and I moved with our two small children to the town outside of New Orleans where I grew up, Metairie, Louisiana. Okay. And the move was primarily because my work was rather far away. We were living across the world's longest bridge over water on the (laughs) north shore of Lake Pontchartrain. And I was commuting across that bridge from the little city of Mandeville where we lived across that bridge and all the way through the city and then all, and then deep into a neighborhood on the other side of the downtown. So it was a long commute, about an hour and 15 minutes at best to an hour and a half. And we decided to move closer. That was in the summer of 2005 in July. We bought a house and not long after, about five or six weeks later, Katrina flooded that house, the hurricane. Oh, no. Yeah. And we yeah. found ourselves hurricane refugees, like so many people that we knew and loved. Yeah. And so many of the people who lived there. Interestingly enough, had we stayed put, we would not have gotten flooded at all. That's so, really um, interesting. Fine. But anyway, what are you going to do? As it yeah. turns out, we ended up as hurricane refugees in a little town in central Louisiana called Bungie, Louisiana. Okay. And while I was there, I was approached by a priest who was the president of McGill-Tulin Catholic High School in Mobile, Alabama. Okay. A friend of mine who was one of his teachers had given him my name. Mm-hmm. And he asked me if I would be interested in proposing a project for them. They wanted a curriculum on the relationship between faith and science. Mm-hmm. 
And at the time, it wasn't clear that the college where I was teaching would ever open again. So many oh, no. of the people who had been, that we served, had been completely devastated by Katrina. And so there were various rumors, but some of them, most of them were not good, right? And it was hard to get any word from anyone at that time because no one was connected to what was happening. So I actually said yes to it because I knew at the very least that the semester would be canceled or postponed as it turned out. So I decided to say yes to it just so that I would have something to focus on and perhaps some income if in fact the college was no longer able to pay us. And so- yeah. If that doesn't sound like very noble and admirable motives, I'm sorry. But it was actually a, a great opportunity that kind of showed up to me. And so from a spiritual perspective, I thought, well, maybe God is calling me to do this right now. And so yeah. I did. I spent two years creating that curriculum. It was end, it ended up being published as a textbook called Faith, Science, and Reason, which I mentioned before yeah. in 2009. So I spent two years writing it and then went through a two-year editing process. And at the end of that, or at the end of writing it, we began to use it at McGill Tulin High School as planned, even before it was published. But what we discovered was that the teachers at McGill were having a very difficult time teaching the material well and having a difficult time collaborating. The science teachers had no little or no background in theology besides maybe perhaps their own catechesis growing up. And the religion teachers had no background in science. And so on the basis of that, in order to help facilitate their use of the material, we created a seminar called the Steno learning program for secondary educators. We actually wow. did two big fundraisers and cooked a lot of excellent Cajun food. We even, for one of them, <laughs> uh, we even cooked a whole suckling pig in a Cajun microwave. It was great. Yeah. And then what we did was we had even an auction for them and we built up enough money to put on a week-long seminar in the summer of 2011 for the teachers at McGill-Tulin, but also for other Catholic teachers from various places in the Archdiocese of New Orleans, because that's where one of our fundraisers had been, and we wanted to benefit that community. Yeah, that's really cool. And so that kind of began, really was kind of kicked off my work in forming educators in the area. So sorry if that was a long explanation. No, no, that's that's really cool. I didn't realize that you had kind of stumbled into this and yeah. that this started all the way back in New Orleans. It did. And so for years, so for the program that we funded, actually received additional funding from the John Templeton Foundation. Yeah, I think I've heard of that. Yeah. And so for the next two years, we did two more seminars. And this time we invited teachers from all over the country. Ooh. And little did I know that the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the time, just the Institute for Church Life here at Notre Dame had similar plans. So in 2014, they started a seminar for teachers on faith and science. And I actually attended it as just a participant. But I thought my work in seminars were done until <laughs> 2016, when they got in touch with me and asked if I would be part of a new grant and develop another seminar. Ooh. And then one thing led to another and they invited me to come here and direct. So there's the long twisting trail that leads me to this wonderful podcast. Yeah. So you started off as a Louisian, Louisianian? Yeah, what sure, is. sure. And now I guess you're a Hoosier. <laughs> um, let's say I'll always be a Louisianian, but I'm happy to make Hoosier, uh, what would be the, would the, uh, the Hoosier state home for a while. How's that? Yeah. I mean, Louisiana always makes deep impression on you. My parents yeah. actually lived there for a few years after they first got married. Excellent. And so 
they appreciate New Orleans and all that. Excellent. Yeah, where do they live? They lived in New Orleans? Yeah, they lived there in like the, the late 80s, early 90s. Wow. This was yeah. before I walked the earth. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But they just always talk highly of their New Orleans friends and the Cajun food. and. Oh, yeah. I'm honestly shocked they haven't taken us there more. Yeah, yeah. Got to get there sometime. Exactly. I haven't been there since 2017. Yeah, this is the time of year to be there. I was there just a few weeks ago trying to enjoy some Mardi Gras and thaw out a little bit. (laughs) So, yeah. So one of the things that was interesting to me as I kind of came to this, I wouldn't say like with a blank slate as regards faith and science. I knew some things I thought about a little bit. But what was surprising to me, I guess, was how many interesting things had been said and written throughout the church's history about the relationship between faith and the natural world, creation. Mm -hmm. And then also from there, how open the church was to the progress of scientific discovery and inquiry and how many great Catholics, even saints in some cases, like St. Yeah. Albert Grace, oh, the Grace, classic. Yeah, had been a pioneer scientist, had actually made huge strides in the yeah. sciences. I actually yeah. talked about him in a podcast I released in January around my birthday. Yeah. I talked about 25 Catholic scientists that people should know about yeah, in I'm the sure past. And St. Albert the Great, of course, was number one. Oh, yeah. He's the patron saint of science for a reason. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he was amazing. And so I didn't know any of that. Like I wrote my doctoral dissertation on St. Thomas Aquinas. Classic. I didn't know that his great teacher was one of the people who pioneered an empirical approach to the study of nature and actually did experiments or experimental things. I had no idea. I also didn't realize how much a Aquinas wrote, St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, wrote, wrote so much, I'm... but how much of what he wrote was <laughs> applicable to understanding how to relate things like evolution and our faith, you know, and uh, so many ways of ways of thinking about how God acts in the world that doesn't push nature aside, but actually works in and through nature. All of those things were really not what I was focusing on when I studied Aquinas and when I wrote my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And so it was wonderful to return to all of that and just be deeply informed about those things. And so what I thought would be a one-off project was something that I enjoyed so much that it just slowly began to take more and more and more emphasis. You know what I mean? Yeah. In my thoughts and my work, also in the activities I was doing and, and you know, opportunities outside the classroom. At this point now, I was at Notre Dame Seminary when that really took off. That's the major seminary in New Orleans, not affiliated with the University of Notre Dame. But yeah, because I was going to say, I was like, wait, Notre Dame? Because the Notre Dame name i know is the one that's like an hour from my hometown right right yeah that's the one where i am now but before this i was at the at uh, notre dame major seminary and so i just kept finding myself drawn to do more and more and more research and get excited i published a second edition of the textbook in 2019 Uh, yeah and so now basically what was my moonlighting and my temporary project has become my daylighting It's what I do with most of my time. That's really awesome. Yeah. Now, when you said that you did your doctoral dissertation on St. Thomas Aquinas, and we know that as a doctor of the church, he has many, many writings on many, many things. Yeah. Did you have like a specific thing that you examined? Yes. So one thing that many people don't know is that Thomas Aquinas wrote many, many biblical commentaries. Mm Mm-hmm. 
they think about the summas, you know, like the summa theologiae or the summa contradictilis, yeah. and they, they think about those, and that's what Thomas wrote. But he wrote all kinds of things. And one of them was a lot of, in fact, they were his teaching notes because he was teaching scripture. And I had done some work on that in my master's program, and I thought it would be interesting to look at his commentary on St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Mm. which in which Paul it talks about the church and the theology of the church comes out over and over and over again in that. Mm -hmm. Well, I was wondering what, what kind of thoughts that stimulated in Aquinas in his commentary. And so basically I wrote my dissertation on the vision of the church and St. Thomas Aquinas's commentary on Ephesians, on the epistle to the Ephesians. So really as cool. you can see, not very much a faith and science topic, but that's kind of where I started. Yeah. And where did you end up doing, where was your doctoral program? Was this also down in Louisiana? No, it was at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Oh, so you've kind of been like all over the eastern part oh, of the yeah, United yeah. States. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I, I mean, all three degrees meant leaving New Orleans. I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville. Oh, And, and graduated yeah. from there in 1990. And then I finished my master's degree at the University of Dallas and Irving, Texas in 96. And then went to Duquesne to study, which is not far from Franciscan University. Yeah. Uh, went to Duquesne to get my PhD. So, yeah, I bounced around a lot, but I thought my, my Midwestern days were over until <laughs> I got invited to come by the, by the university, about, you know, by the Institute to, to, to do what I'm doing now. Yeah. God was like, you thought wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very funny. Yeah, well, I'm I'm hopeful that the Hoosier state is at least treating you well. It is. You know, there are certain prejudices that people develop, certain ideas and stereotypes mm -hmm. that you hear your whole life and then you wonder if they're true. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, for instance, that uh, Midwestern people are very reserved and that kind of thing. But I don't find that's true of South Bend. I, I find that the no. people are very gregarious and outgoing. And of course, you're connected to a large community at the University of Notre Dame. So after five years, starting to have experiences I used to have all the time in Covington, Louisiana, which is where we lived for a long time, which is going to the grocery store and bumping into people I know, which is neat. Yeah, yeah. I love how you thought that Midwesterners were reserved. And I'm like, well, South Bend, I mean, it's yeah. an iconic Hoosier college town. Right, exactly. And, and all the friendly people... folks that that live here. Oh, yeah. Well, like, heck, all the people I know from the South Bend area are very gregarious people. And yeah. honestly, also another state in the Midwest that is definitely not reserved. If you've ever met someone from Wisconsin. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, that's true. And I have. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So there you go. We should never believe the stereotypes that people yeah. present. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm sure there were something some truth that led to that stereotype but they clearly didn't sample the whole midwest you think about it we could learn something in our estimation of other people and places <laughs> from the scientific method so exactly when you hear a stereotype hold it as a hypothesis and then rigorously try to disprove it exactly and in most cases you will yeah yeah you're absolutely right because people are even from certain regions are well heck god makes us all unique so that's right of course yeah. you're going to find exceptions to the rule. Right, right. Sure. So you've meandered your way to South Bend, Indiana and Notre Dame. Yes. What exactly do you do at the McGrath Institute? Okay. So 
as I like I said, I so when I came here, they were in the third year of a third grant from the Templeton Foundation Ooh. to help Catholic secondary educators integrate faith and science. Now, as you recall, as I was sharing my story earlier, that was mm -hmm. an area that I had ended up in thanks to my work with McGill Tulin and mm -hmm. continued it actually with a work, some work that I did at St. Mary's Dominican High School in New Orleans after McGill Tulin. So I, I had had some experiences with that and they were getting into their third year and then they were going to be in that third year doing another proposal to Templeton to continue that work. Mm -hmm. So so that is what we do. We, we do this in a number of ways. We have summer seminars for Catholic high school science and religion teachers and administrators that goes for a week at Notre Dame. We call it Foundations Notre Dame. Nice. And we hear from philosophers, theologians, but of course, physicists, chemists, and biologists about the relationship between faith and science. So they get to hear from Catholic scientists, and they also get to hear from Catholic theologians about the harmony between the two. We do something similar um, in New Orleans, because when I first started working with the Institute, I was actually still living there and working there. Yeah. Uh, and that's another week-long program like the one here. It's not identical. One difference that we have there is that we have three major science experiments that we've integrated into the experience. So you've got the science teachers teaching their theology colleagues in the lab how to do science and guiding <laughs> them through the process. And then you've got the seminar discussions of works like on Genesis and, the, and science or whatever else it might be. And the theologians tend to take the lead there. So yeah. it's really nice to watch them learn from each other and learn about the various and the different methods that science yeah. I love then, that you do that because the yeah. I've always heard and believe that if you can teach it, then you know what you're doing. And so you're yes. allowing these people that attend the seminars to teach their craft. Right, right. And we put a lot of a lot of emphasis not just on hearing talks from experts, but on dialogue, which we do. We do have great presenters, but on dialogue with teachers and the team that's leading them. So we read things and then we discuss them and it gives them an opportunity to begin to formulate the words that they'll need to bring it back to their classrooms. That's awesome. Uh, so that's very cool. And then we also do day-long professional development events all over the country as part of our grant. We go and we we'll work with whole faculty. So we'll work with Catholic science and religion teachers from across a region. And we go out and we and we basically bring a team and give presentations and have breakout sessions and usually a concluding panel where everyone can kind of jump in and share. The, that is the whole team. Everybody can ask questions of them and that kind of thing. So we do those too. We do about five of those a year. That's awesome. Yeah. And then the rest of the work that I do, I have a concurrent appointment in the Department of Theology. So I teach faith and science courses on the undergraduate and graduate level. And sometimes they'll even let me out of my pen and I'll teach courses that aren't specifically faith and science. So it's nice. Ooh, what are some of your favorite courses that you have taught? One of my favorite, I've never taught it at the University of Notre Dame, but Back in a colleague of mine, Professor Corey Hayes, mm -hmm. uh, and I decided to apply for a grant from John Carroll in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. They were doing something with seminaries, and we proposed a course called The Emergence of the Image, Human Origins from Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Perspectives. Ooh. And we got that grant, and we got the grant to offer it at the undergraduate seminary where he taught, um, St. Joseph Seminary College, and okay. also at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans where I was teaching. So one semester we did it at St. Joseph Seminary College, the next at Notre Dame Seminary. That really has become the area of most fascination for me. 
Maria yeah. doing a directed reading right now for a grad student on human origins in light of faith and science, you know, in both, from both the faith and the science perspective. Wow. So yeah, that's been, that was probably my favorite course. It was one of the hardest to teach because it involved a lot of research that I hadn't done, but it was also one of the most rewarding. Yeah, I bet that definitely sounds really cool. Yeah. I mean, it allows you to kind of, we know what the science says and we know, heck, if you read the catechism, right. you can extrapolate meaning from the origin stories in Genesis and what they say about the human person. Right. Exactly. And both of those perspectives are very important. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. So seeing them and how they can equally inform each other is very important. The kind of the motto that I follow that I first discovered way back when I was just trying to begin to research and write the first edition of the textbook. So this is back in 2005, maybe 2006. And it was less than a year after St. John Paul II died. Yeah. But I discovered a quote from him from a letter that he wrote to the director of the Vatican Observatory. Wait, who was the director at that time? Father George Coyne, a Jesuit astronomer. He's iconic. Yes, he is. Absolutely. He's well known. Yeah. And in his letter to Coyne, the Pope wrote, science can purify religion from error and superstition, mm -hmm. and religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Ooh. Each can draw the other into a wider world where both may flourish. That... I always try to use that as the as the bar or the standard by which I measure the work that I do with teachers. Yeah. If it's going to be helpful for religion teachers, their encounter with science should be one that helps them see most deeply what the Catholic faith is, but also how to relate it to the natural world truthfully and well. Yeah. Right? And for the scientists, for them to be able to see that the study, the empirical study of nature is not the be all end all of all knowledge or the only form of knowledge as some would have it. Yeah. But actually that there's a wider, more transcendent kind of knowledge that theology and philosophy engages. That's an important context for modern science. Yeah. And that honestly reminds me of, so last semester, one of the priests here in Muncie, he would do these things called Friday Formation, where a bunch of us would get together on a Friday night and he would teach us about various different topics from a Catholic perspective. Last yeah. semester, the theme was kind of like how to be human. And yeah. one of the first Friday formations he did was he talked about philosophy and philosophical errors that people have made in the past, one of which I'm blanking on the name, but it has to do with just the idea of the material world is all there is. Materialism. Materialism, yes. Yes, yes. And when he was going through all those philosophical errors, materialism included, I was like, whoa. It was like my mind was opened. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, one of the problems I think that happens with ideas like materialism is that the power of science so deeply impresses it on a person that they're tempted to add only to their right to their path of insight. Right. Mm -hmm. So science studies the natural world and tells us truth about it. Well, scientism is when you just add the word only to that and say only science can, yeah. can provide us with truth. Right. Well, the, pro the, the only is the problem. Right. Not the idea that science can provide us with truth, yeah. that only science can do that. Only that science in the way we define it now is the empirical study of the natural world, the methodical study of the natural world. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true because there are different things that are true that you cannot use science to figure out. Sure, you know? absolutely. For <laughs> a silly example, to find out what my favorite color is, you can't use science to figure that out. You right. have to <laughs> ask. Sure, and it becomes even more universal and pressing than that. I mean, mm -hmm. knowing everything that science has revealed about electricity. Mm-hmm. 
doesn't answer the question if there are circumstances under which we should electrocute people. Exactly. In other words, there are questions that, that, that there are no shoulds or there are no moral imperatives written into the scientific method. You have to go to a wider wisdom in order to actually begin to answer questions like those, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you need to draw on religious tradition. You need to draw on the insights of great thinkers like philosophers who, you know, great ethicists. And these are real forms of study in themselves. One of the refreshing things that happens in our seminars is that you'll find science teachers sometimes surprised, but happily so, that their religion colleagues are not just about creating paper mache butterflies and religion class <laughs> and talking with students about how they feel about God. What they're actually doing has a real method to it. It involves serious thought, serious discipline, and is something that can engage a person for a lifetime. Oh, yeah. And, and vice versa. It's very exciting to watch the religion teachers see that science is not just simply cold and impersonal, but can inspire awe and wonder. Oh, yeah. So when you put those together that way, you're expanding the horizons of both. You know what I mean? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of how back in, I think it was the late 19th century, around the time that electricity and magnetism were being yeah. really formulated, a lot of the leading scientists of the time, they were like, oh, like we've figured out all the laws of physics and all that. And from here on out, we'll just be refining things. And there yep. aren't really anything, there isn't anything new to be discovered. And then you have the theory of relativity come on hand. You have quantum mechanics and all these yes. other really cool theories. And it just goes to show that there's always more to learn. Absolutely. And the, we haven't mentioned this yet, but as I told you before we started, mm -hmm. I recently did a free video series with Word on Fire. I had the word free because it's not behind a paywall or anything. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah. Called Wonder the Harmony of Faith and Science. Yeah. And the first video is called Light from Light, Scientific Enigmas and Theological Mysteries. Ooh. <laughs> and in, in that first one, it's kind of getting to the point that you were making. In the first one, what I want people to realize is that, you know, the deeper we, the more science discovers, it just seems to uncover new horizons, Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it reveals things like, as you know, the wave particle duality of light that simply cannot be adequately imagined or comprehended by the human mind, right? Mm -hmm. In much the same way, faith involves paradoxes and mysteries. Mm -hmm. Like, this looks like bread and wine, but it's really the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Heck right? yeah, it is. Right, God is, God, Jesus Christ is fully God, but he's also fully human. Yeah. He doesn't lack anything that makes us human, right, in his incarnation. God is one God, but three divine persons, unlike you or I, which is one I'm... human being, one person, right? Yeah. So people who might look at theological things and say, oh, that's misty, murky, you know what I mean? And even go to words like superstitious or that kind of thing, don't realize that in the natural world, there are real paradoxes too, and that they have things that boggle our minds in both. So exactly. they're not so different from that perspective after all. Yeah. Yeah. That's honestly just blows my mind because- Yeah. <laughs> Super cool stuff. Yeah. It, and it always just reminds me of how we are meant to be lifelong learners in yes. whatever field we go into, but also just we should, you know, always be reading stuff and learning new information. Right. Because life just isn't exciting if you're not learning. Right. I mean, if you think about it, most of the pioneers in science, mm -hmm. even if they weren't religious people or they weren't Catholic people, although many of them were, as you know, they tend to be people who are not quick 
to settle on the easiest or most dismissive way of approaching the world, right? Or just cold calculation of results in the lab. There are people who pondered, you know? I think about Einstein who said, the greatest mystery of the universe is that it's understandable. <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah, that it's understandable, he said, is almost a miracle. I, that's great. I mean, because that brings, it shows that he was able to do pioneering incredible things and in helping us understand the universe. But he did it from a vantage point that kept the horizon beyond open. You know what I mean? To things that were more, you know what I mean? And asking yeah. questions that go down to the very why. Yeah. yeah. It, it reminds me of this encounter I read about him. He had this encounter with Lamatra. Yes, right. Back in probably like the 20s or something like that, or the 30s. And yeah. Einstein did not believe Lamatra's work on the expansion of the universe and all that at first. He was like, this is like hogwash. Yeah, yeah. And maybe he said it a little bit more nicely than that. Well, he um, actually said that he told by telegram, or I think it was, now that's the story, that he told Father Lamette that his idea of the Big Bang, he said about the uh, his idea of an expanding universe, he said, your grasp of physics is correct, <laughs> but your, you know, your, your, your calculations are correct, but your grasp of physics is abominable. <laughs> Yes, I remember that. And but, when I read that, I laughed. But going back to his humility, he ultimately accepted that we live in a dynamically expanding universe. He actually showed that by going to a presentation by Lamette at a scientific meeting and leading, sitting in the back of the room, but also leading a standing ovation. Wow. And later told his, a biographer or an interviewer that uh, not seeing the full implications of his own equations was one of the biggest blunders of his life. So that's what I'm talking about. Folks like that who have a humility, who don't want to add the word only to their explanations, but are open to other th things like Einstein was, they turn out to be the greatest thinkers and the ones that really kind of yeah. lose in science. Yeah, that humility just really strikes me because we elevate Einstein almost on a pedestal, yet he had the humility to admit when he was wrong. Absolutely, yes. And I feel like he, he was a little bit less that way when it came to quantum mechanics, but he still like yeah. didn't completely dismiss it. Right. I mean, what is it? Like Niels Bohr something like chided him on his, oh, he, because Einstein famously said that God doesn't play dice. And right. <laughs> I want to say it's Niels Bohr, but if it's not, someone it might be Niels Bohr. I'm not sure. That That seems correct. But Niels right. Bohr's like, you can't, you can't tell God what to do. God can play <laughs> dice if he wants to. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> excellent yeah, yeah that's wonderful yeah so and honestly an intellectual humility like that is it's important in both science and in theology Absolutely. because we're not perfect we're not god how can we know everything right that's why we have to always learn yeah yeah one of the mistakes of our age which we've carried over from the enlightenment period mm -hmm. is trying to make human reason the ultimate norm for truth like, if I can't grasp it, it can't possibly be true. Yeah. Well, that's a mistake, though, seems to me. That it's not that we should never accept things that are absolutely and obviously contradictory. Mm -hmm. Like, we shouldn't reject the principle of non-contradiction or, or illogic or the principle of sufficient reason, that there should be a sufficient reason for something, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly. But simply saying, because I can't fully comprehend that it, it can't possibly be true is, I think, a terrible error. Yeah, it closes yourself off to what can be. Right, absolutely. Yeah, a question that popped into my head. Do you have any presenters that you've had at your seminars and stuff that just blew you out of the water and really made you think? If it's oh, possible yes. to quantify. 
Absolutely. First of all, let me say that we've had such amazing presenters that they've largely remained the same throughout my entire five years here. Mm-hmm. One of them is someone whom we've already discussed, the great particle physicist Stephen Barr. Yeah, I need to society- talk with him. <laughs> yeah, founder of the Society of Catholic Scientists, author of Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. Mm-hmm. He usually does our physics section, but sometimes we've also been fortunate to have the current director of the Vatican Observatory. Oh, yeah. Yes. He's cool. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is now I'm talking about our summer seminars. We've had a lot more and varied number of speakers at our day long professional development events. At the Dean of Applied and Natural Sciences at Franciscan University, Dan Keebler, is a biologist. Cool. He presents for us. Karen Uberg is a astrochemist at Harvard, and she does our chemistry presentations and a number of different things related to that. She actually studies exoplanets and the chemistry of life sources. Yeah. yeah. Sister Damien Marie told me about her too. Oh yeah, she's she's remarkable. We I've mentioned Professor Corey Hayes who worked with me on that course together. He always gives he gives a number of different presentations, but one of his most mind-blowing and interesting is historical and it's about the Galileo affair. <laughs> so, yeah. Um yeah, yeah. So and what really happened with Galileo was fantastic. It's a very good story. It's a very good presentation and it's it was quite a dramatic series of of events. So yeah. really fun to listen to. Honestly, someone should like turn that into a movie or a TV series just because it would make great television. Absolutely. You can't make that stuff up. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can. And then also at one of our events we did that we had an evolutionary psychologist by the name of Matt Rossano. And he gave a talk called How Rituals Made Us Human. Oh. And he related human origins to the development of ritual behaviors among animals and that kind of thing, and kind of showed a little bit of a trajectory to human evolution, but also what makes us different from the rest of the animals. That was extraordinary. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, because that's something that I think the catechism talks a little bit about that, where what separates us from the angels, what separates us from animals, and what we have in common with both. Right, right. Right. And we could even say from the other animals, because certainly no problem from the Catholic perspective to say we are animals. We have an evolutionary history, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Actually, I'll share one of my now. So I try to say, as you were talking about humility before, please don't take this as arrogant. But (laughs) one of my favorite talks that I've ever given, I gave as a keynote at the Society of Catholic Scientists meeting in 2021. And it was called E.T. in Catholic Theology. (laughs) That sounds so fun. It's like a theologian's perspective on what we might expect if we found other rational creatures in the universe like us who were free, right? What would that mean? I mean, what would we expect their relationship with God would be and all that kind of stuff. So because we have not yet discovered any such creatures and we can only speculate, it was really fun because I got to just think of all kinds of (laughs) angles to take with it and that sort of thing. Yeah, I've watched a video on that topic before. I'm trying to remember who gave that. There's like a one-on-one conversation it's somewhere on youtube i should probably link it in my show notes but there was a lot of speculation on what finding intelligent life would mean and how we could interpret it from a catholic lens and i was just like this talk is really cool (laughs) awesome yeah yeah mine is actually online too and i then i i published it the institute has an online journal called church life journal And I published it there, ET and Catholic Theology. So if you're interested in my perspective on it, it's not hard to find. I'll have to link that too. 
because I'm yeah. sure people will have a great time reading about it because everyone is fascinated with aliens. How can you not be? Exactly. Yeah. It's cool. To I'm think with them. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's just one of those things that people are always fascinated about. I mean, right. who knows if there's life out there besides us? I guess yeah. God knows, but right, we don't right. know yet. Right. And if they they are and they're and they're rational, they've gone beyond the threshold, say, from animal communication to language and symbolism. Mm-hmm. And the things that we associate with the ability to abstract enough from things to make judgments about our own judgments. Yeah. Gives us freedom, right? Respond, you know what I mean? Which makes us not just voluntary, you know what I mean, in the way that other animals are, but actually free, capable of thinking about our actions and taking responsibility for them at the moral level. Then they would have to be called the image and likeness of God too, right? Because, and there's nothing in our faith that tells us that can't be possible. Right. But there is a lot in our faith that tells us what that might be like. That's what I tried to do. Yeah. That's, yeah. I love that. The, oh, what a great topic. Yeah. I, ooh, I thought of another question. Nope. Since this is a science and faith podcast, what is your faith life like? How does that look like for a theologian? Well, it doesn't look much different than anyone else's would, would look, I would imagine. Today, when I got up, I got my 11 year old son. I have four children. And mm-hmm. one grandchild, which is really exciting. Right. Wait, is that me. your picture when you walk into Zoom? Was um, yes, that's me holding him. Right. That's Leo, Aww. my grandson. I have an 11-year-old son, three sons, 11, 16, and almost 21. And then I have a daughter who's 23, and she's the mom that we're talking about. Aww. But get up in the morning, get some coffee, help my fifth grader get ready for school, go to school mm-hmm. on my way home. I listen to Pray As You Go, which is a free app that nice. kind of leads you through a meditation on one of the day's readings from Mass. Ooh. And so I did that. And then when I got home, had another cup of coffee. And after <laughs> I stopped being distracted because I got a phone call from my sister and she wanted to talk about something. But And anyway, once I got past being distracted, I prayed the Liturgy of the Hours, which is the special prayer the church prays that includes Psalms, readings from the Old Testament and New Testament, and responses. I love praying the Psalms, and so I spent about 15, 20 minutes doing that, and then I took a shower and came to work. Nice. That that sounds um, like a... Yeah, so already failing at some of our Lenten promises and trying to get back to them. Yeah. What are Theologians you... are much like everyone else, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, What are you doing for Lent, if you don't mind sharing? Absolutely. So Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at our house, we're doing no screens except for work and school. Nice. So, and it's been awesome because we get to talk to each other more and catch up. And my wife is campus minister at the local high school, so she's not been home because this week is, she also works with the drama program and this week they're getting ready to do their big play. So it's nice. They, my When my daughter did drama in high school, they called it hell week because they'd be there till nine, <laughs> nine, 10 o'clock at night, you know? Yeah. I've heard of that. So it's just me and my boys. And, you know, on Monday night, I made dinner and then we played a board game together. You know what I mean? That's Um, incredible. I love that. What we haven't been really doing is spending the time, the extra time in prayer we're supposed to do with that silent time because my wife isn't home to crack the whip and I'm irresponsible. (laughs) So anyway. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. So, but, you know, tonight's another no screen night. So we're going to give it another shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're getting part of the way there. You just got to. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm certainly guilty of not using my free time like I should to go pray. 
That's why I told myself that I would make an extra holy hour yeah. every week, which I did not do last week. But <laughs> I, I have gotten in Don't my extra up. holy hour. Yes. Don't give Perseverance up. If you think of it as an aspiration rather than an obligation, but you, but a serious one, you'll make progress. If you're just always feeling guilty because you missed this or missed that, you won't. So that's yeah. what I've learned, at least from my rather amateur spiritual life. Yeah. And honestly, I feel like that's it's good to know even someone like you struggles because we're all human. Yeah, absolutely. And if we forget that and put people on pedestals, yeah, we'll, well, A, we'll, we'd be committing idolatry. Right. B, we're forgetting that even the greatest among us struggle. Absolutely. St. Peter denied Jesus three times and he was the first pope. Right. And I didn't do that. I just <laughs> got too much into my board game and didn't turn around and do our nightly exam and like we were supposed to do. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> no, but God willing, I'll never, I hopefully will never do that. But just so the, yeah. So anyway, being a theologian really has more to do with a particular way of engaging the faith. One in which, see, I, I never planned to be a theologian. I took a theology class in college and it was so good <laughs> that I decided to add it as a second major. Incredible. I was going to be a psychologist, but what <laughs> I discovered was that I had so many questions and I began and I was thinking about those more and more and more. And I was thinking about, say, getting my master's in social work or becoming a general counselor less and less and less. And that kind of showed me, okay, well, maybe this is the right path for me, you know. Hey, we, we got to love when we just stumble upon our callings. Yeah, absolutely. As you can see, I have to stumble on things like Hurricane Katrina has to push me out of my home and all those, like I said earlier, for me yeah. to actually find out where God wants me to go. Yeah, it really kind of hits that God can use all things for good, even if they're horrible, like a hurricane. Yes, absolutely. In fact, going back to that that I told you about that film series. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the first video, Light from Light. The last one is called A Window on Salvation, Mathematics and the Mystery of the Incarnation. And it's about the North Rose window of Shark Cathedral and how it basically depicts how God writes straight with crooked lines in history. Ooh. So just the idea you have there. So yeah, wow, that sounds inspiring. And it would be a good waste of my time. Or well, <laughs> it <laughs> It would be a good way to spend my time if I fail to pray to watch. I hope, I hope it's not too much of a waste of time. But. Exactly. Like it's, it kind of reminds me how I always tell people, you know how with the chosen, yes. the creators of the chosen aim to create a series about Jesus that you could binge kind of like you might binge something on Netflix. Yes, right, right. And I always tell people that I never feel bad about binging the chosen because it's just... <laughs> Every single episode just really hits to the heart of the matter. Oh, it's wonderful. Have you uh, seen season three yet? I have finished the season three of The Chosen. And in fact, <laughs> you know, I don't know if you saw it from the very beginning, but my mother-in-law discovered it right away. Wow. And that was in the middle of the pandemic, like nice. spring of 2020, and everybody was stuck at home. And it may have kept my sanity being able to watch that because it was such a crazy and difficult time. Yeah, I see. A couple of weeks ago, I watched the season finale for season three. Yeah. And that episode just, I had so many revelations and it just really connected with me. Yeah, and I loved the scene of Jesus walking on water and Peter kind of just going off on a rant on how yes, great, great. I was like me and Peter right now. Like, Boom. Yes. Great stuff. 
<laughs> among other things that happened during that but it just really like i can't oh. wait for season four i wish yes. season four was here <laughs> yes i know we actually went to the theater to get the preview of the first two episodes here in was south it? my wife and i it was well you know of not a four but a three so mm -hmm. because we didn't want to wait till it started coming out so we we went to the yeah. theater to see it. great stuff would you recommend going to see it in theaters if they do that again oh yeah absolutely it was great i mean the big screen is always better than the tv screen true yeah so no we loved it it was great i wanted to but i think I'm trying to remember when it came out i think i had to go home the weekend it was in theaters yeah and so i didn't have opportunity to go watch it and plus the nearest theater that showed it was in indianapolis in the first place and i'm like that's a commitment to go drive to indianapolis even though it's an hour away yeah that is a commitment so speaking of that i'm actually going to be heading out on march 21st to indiana university in bloomington yes that's oh. my alma mater hey excellent yeah i'm going out to the Thomistic Institute chapter there. That's it, so cool. I know that. It, you know them. Okay, yeah. They invited me to come and speak on the Catholic Church and Modern Science Understanding and Correcting Models of Conflict. Uh-huh. That's and so which cool. I'll talk about the idea of conflict between faith and science and where that comes from Ooh. and the church's actually actual theological approach to to science, which is quite different than what they're charged with. Yeah. So what the church has been charged with. So, yeah. So anyway, I'll just throw that out there. You're going to uh, see my homies. Yeah, I'll see your homies. Absolutely. So fun fact, I, one of the head honchos of the Thomistic Institute, Grace Field, uh -huh. I know her. She was a freshman my senior year at IU. Yeah. And she... Well, they had a, earlier in the month, they had this really cool Dominican talk mm -hmm. about ethics of using CRISPR. And it's probably I, called the Nicanor Austriaco, huh? Maybe. I'd have maybe. to go back and look, yeah. but it was really cool. And I asked Grace if the, it was going to be recorded because I was like, as much as I would love to make the drive down to Bloomington, that's not very feasible. And she sent me the link for the Zoom and I was not disappointed. It was a great talk. And oh, excellent. I might need to ask her for the link for your talk. There you go. It probably just drive out. That's a two-hour drive. No, oh, uh, never mind. <laughs> or, else, or else I would. Plus, I around that time I have to submit my uh, thesis to yeah. my committee, and given that plus the two-hour drive, that it's. I wish I could teleport. Right, right. And I would one hundred percent be there. Thank you so much. <laughs> but I'll have to tell Grace that I got a chance to talk with you before. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to meeting everybody out there. It'll be fun. Yeah, IU played a huge role in my deepening of my faith. So right. I'm glad to see them doing great things down there still. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just realized it's very close to 1230. Do you have any last minute words of wisdom or advice or comments that you want to give to the audience? Not, I don't think so. Not right off the top of my head. But just to thank everybody for listening and thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Yeah, I enjoyed talking with you too. This was so fun. And I wish I didn't have lunch plans right after this. But... <laughs> now I've got to go make lunch plans. So <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm doing for lunch yet. All I know is I'm going to Ball State's atrium. That's all I know. Yeah, there you go. We'll have a great one. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. And please be in touch if there's anything else I can do for you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. And I hope our listeners had a great time listening to our chat. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to the Shine Bright Like the Firmament podcast. Please feel free to like us on social media, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and give us a review. 
Always feel free to suggest future guests for this podcast, but most importantly, don't be afraid to be a light to this world.